Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with expat Aussie racer Will Power. Now, if you haven't already, you should check out part one, the early years, why they breed them tough in Toowoomba, how racing runs in the Power family, and the often uncertain road he walked for many years trying to get a break. It's easy to find in our library, and it's all set for you to hit the start button on right now. You'll enjoy the discussion coming up here in part two around his historic win at the Indy 500. There's also a spine-chilling recollection of a huge crash at Las Vegas back in 2011. It left me speechless. And what it's like to drive for the captain, Roger Penske. We launch back into things beginning this second part by reliving that very first test, that first experience in a champ car and just how removed it was from the F1 ride. Yeah, well, it's definitely a different machine to the Formula One as far as you'd certainly move it around a lot more and um, more of a beastie, obviously a heavier car. That car I tested in particular was an understeering car. Mm -hmm. It was a Reynard and Walker was changing literally straight after that to go to the Lola, which is a much better car. And um, so it was a very comfortable car to drive. Its its natural state was understeer. So, you know, you you weren't really getting loose in the fast stuff. And, um, but I do, it's just, you know, vivid memory in my mind was driving down the back straight of Portland, grabbing, you know, seventh gear and going, man, I could get paid to do this. (laughs) Like it's seriously fast and just kept going because of the turbo. And it's like a lot of power and, you know, just just an awesome machine. Like, who wouldn't want to get paid to drive an awesome machine? Like that mm. was just such a cool thing to drive. And um, and they were trying to get me to sign a contract. Like, I can't believe I even kind of considered it, it should have just been a signature straight off the bat. But um, Mark Larkham really helped me out with that contract. Expand like, on that. Really helped me get a. He really helped me get a good paycheck for my first season in in uh, my first contract the first contract the way it was structured i ended up making really good money for the first two years of champ car it was all mark lark and he he helped me out um i'm pretty sure he's the one that spoke to craig gore and said this is what this driver should be paid and you know craig he's kind of like yep whatever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Derek Walker's like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. <laughs> but he got it was a deal. And yeah, um, I didn't get paid at all uh as things went through, but I didn't care. It was still good money to drive, like for what I got paid. And uh um yeah, it was lucky. Lucky to have Mark. Like Mark, he was he was very good, very uh appreciative of uh of, of what he did for me there. And yeah, I still talk I still talk to him at that point you know, every few months anyway because I, mm. I drove the BA supercar with him. Yeah. He was somewhat of a mentor, you could say. Definitely. And that was kind of my next question about, um, you, you know, you've uh, you've driven the supercar. Is um, Was that something that was potentially on the horizon like like Will Davison or were you just going to absolutely hook into this this US dream? And maybe in, in uh, later time now, mate, is there a want to perhaps do some more supercar racing again one day? There's certainly a want to come back and do Bathurst or do mm-hmm. the endurance races, but particularly Bathurst. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just so hard with the schedule. But uh, at that point, I was absolutely focused on you know, being in champ mm-hmm. car. I mean, I had a contract, so there was no thought of uh, uh, V8 supercar then. I always kept, always had at that point kept an eye on it because your career is so unsure a lot of the time. But I had a contract, but you know, there would be times when the funding would dry up for a while and it was unsure whether we'd make this race. I just remember going through that with Derek Walker. So, yeah, you always had in the back of your mind that fallback plan to potentially come back to Australia and and then race V8s. But that actually came at the end of 08 when the two series merged back together. Mm. 
um, you know, that was my third year in, in America. Um, you know, I did the two years in the champ car. Second year was quite successful, very fast, got like six poles and a lot of front rows starting on the front row, a couple of wins. Um, and then looking really forward to the next season, the, the series rejoined. And then obviously out of that, there was some teams that disappeared and one of them was Walker Racing. Mm. Um, and Craig then did a deal with Kevin Kalkova and Craig Gore to have Team Australia with KV Racing. So that was, I did a year there. It was a lot of ovals and I did, really did not like over, did not like the mile and a half ovals. It's just wide open. I felt like it didn't require much talent and it mm-hmm. was very high speed and unnerving inches apart. Didn't like it um, and didn't do, <clears throat> did, didn't do very well that year. I won Long Beach Grand Prix for the final in 08 for the final race of Champ Car. But for the rest of that season, with the speed that I had on road courses, I really had a bad season. It really was a bad season and it pretty much summed it up and finished up at Gold Coast while qualifying on pole, leading by a chunk and then nicking the inside of that wall and pulling a chunk out of the rim and the tire deflated and went in the wall. Um, that... <laughs> That was just, just that was just typical of that season, you know. That was kind of my last hope to try get a drive somewhere. So after that, oh eight, I was done. Like Ross Stone, I can't remember. I th- he sent me an email because I was looking for a driver to replace. Uh, was that Marcus Ambrose at that point? Um, no, might, have James, might have been James Courtney, maybe. Was it who was or, or was it, it Russell? Was James, yeah. I think it yeah. was James Courtney. Mm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was James Courtney. Um, they were looking for someone. So you were on the radar there. Yeah, yeah. They sent me an email, Ross Stone, and um, I believe I spoke to him. If I remember correctly, I spoke to him, and that was certainly an option. And then I think I ummed and ahed for a long time because at that point, it was so hard for me to give up the open wheel thing or IndyCar. And I was speaking to Ryan Reinbold. Um, still, KV was kind of just you know they, nothing was going to happen there. They were just Mm-hmm. they just wouldn't give me an answer. I'm like, yes, just, just say, no, you're not going to be driving. We just simply don't have the money for you to drive. They were going to take a pay driver. They, they should have just told me that from the beginning that they didn't, but I kind of read between the lines. So I was talking to – I actually met with Mike Hole from Ganassi. Oh, that might have been the end of 07, though. I met with Mike Hole. We met at Starbucks, and that was the seat that Dan Weldon took. There was wow. Dario was leaving to NASCAR, uh-huh. if I remember correctly. So I'd had a really good year in Champ Car. I uh, called Michael and he said, Meet me at Starbucks. And he talked about, Well, you got to have the chip factor, you know, it's called the chip factor of drivers, like, you know, guys like Montoya, Jimmy Vassa, um, Zanardi, these guys that drove for him. And so, yeah, I mean, I had a good conversation with him, never heard back. Never heard back from those guys. Years later, <laughs> years later, when I was absolutely kicking ass, Mike Holm did say, our biggest regret was not signing you. That was like 2011, <laughs> I reckon, like after 10, 11 wow. or 9, 10, 11, yeah. when I'd done really well for Penske. But, but uh, yeah, I did meet with those guys at, at uh, the end of 07 when, when uh, we weren't sure. I think it was when it was looking like Champ Car might merge or whatever. But, yeah, so... I did, and I had a conversation with Ross Stone at the end of 08 um, to potentially drive that, that car that year. But the biggest thing that happened at the, in that season was I was actually, I had actually signed a contract with A1GP, and my wife had told me, do not sign that contract. What if Penske or Ganassi have a ride <laughs> at the end of 08, right? Like it had a horrible year. Yeah. And I was done. Like, I had no ride. And I said, that will never happen. There is not going to be a seat with Penske or Ganassi. Liz, you're crazy. And I signed the contract under great stress because of the fighting me and my wife had over it. And then I I, uh, I think I, I was staying at Cal Coven's and I think I, I called them because my wife had just convinced me so much I called them and said, I want out of the contract. I don't want it. And I got Derek Walker to get me out of it. 
on a whim with nothing necessarily. No, yeah. it was just so much stress for me that I'd had with me and my wife going back and forth, me telling her, you're crazy. There's nothing in IndyCar. I can't, you know, what, how's Ganassi or Penske going to have a ride? Like, this is just not going to happen. And then bloody, you know, I get out of that A1 GP contract. And I said, and I actually said to her, I said, I said, if I end up with nothing, I don't know what's going to happen. You'll never like, hear the end of it. I can't remember what I said. It was along the lines of like, <laughs> I will never forgive you. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, um, then, then Elio Castroneves gets arrested from Penske. Elio gets arrested. And that was the Penske seat that, uh, that I would end up getting. Um, and I remember coming home, my wife goes, Elio got arrested. <laughs> Not like happy. He was like, Elliot got arrested. Kind of happy. Can't believe it though. Yeah. Yeah, he can't believe it. And Derek Walker happened to be at Road Atlanta where Roger was with Frisco and Elio who had been taken away, arrested. Um, and and Derek Walker was there. And I think Liz or myself called Derek. Like, hey, Elliot got arrested. And, uh, and I said, go, go see Roger because Derek Walker knows Roger very well. Derek Walker mm. used to run Penske, Penske Racing. And he went and saw Roger and, uh, and then goes, oh, yeah, yep. Um, I guess put it on his radar. I don't know what happened. But, yeah, Roger at that point, probably because it was so early in the game, wasn't probably ready to say we're looking for a driver. He's probably waiting to see what happened with uh, Elia. Uh, Elia, yeah. And then I called Tim Sindrick and said, i got nothing for next year. And he said, oh, okay, well, we'll we can get you up to see Roger. So I thought, oh, great, straight away. Um, so I guess they'd been, you know, looking at other drivers and I went and met with Roger as there was, turned out suit and tie and clean cut and even had, you know, Liz, Liz, my wife and Derek Walker, because Liz was still working for Derek Walker at that point, mm. had given me lessons on how to present myself and, you know, I was a bit rough around the edges because <laughs> grew up in Toowoomba, not that Toowoomba's bad, but um, yeah, turned up suit and tie, ready to go, resumes, nervous as hell when I got hell. there, sat down, mm. Tim Sindrick, Bud Danker, who's, you know, Roger's right-hand man and Roger. Oh, man. Uh, and I just was terrible in the interview. I really was <laughs> terrible. In what but, way? Uh, I was so nervous. I couldn't, I, you know, like Tim Sindrick uh, said in an interview years later, it's like he was a robot. Um, you know, I just answered their questions and, you know, they said, we'll pay you this much for six races if you do it. And I said, oh, yeah, that's very fair. I think they're happy that I said that's very fair <laughs> because it was. It was yeah. uh, pretty good. Like, it was, uh, you know, what a deal. Drive for Penske for, you know, only do some testing. Hmm. Yeah, it was. I think it was like two hundred fifty grand. And I was like, "Yep, very good deal." Yeah, that was yep. to do, however many races to fill in for. And if I kept going, it'd be a different number. But um, yeah, it, and 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 I thought I blew the uh, interview. Wow, I really did. I went. I was like, "Man, I was so nervous." I even told Tim after the interview, we were just sitting in the conference room. So now I was really nervous and just had a conversation. I think Tim was just trying to get a feel for what sort of person I was. I don't mm. think he, you know, that, that's how Tim is. He really likes to know the personality of the driver. Roger really looks at performance mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, he's, he doesn't care much about so much as you might think about presentation. He likes a driver that kicks ass. Mm-hmm. He really does. Mm. That's why I had guys like Paul Tracy for a long time. And even though Paul, you know, he had lots of incidents and, you know, was a, sometimes, you know, a bit, abrasive you could say but roger likes it just a driver gets in and kicks ass Mm. that's what he likes tim really you know obviously he's running the team so presentation and how you speak and such or just getting a a tasty personality that's what he he likes so i don't know how they picked me but roger told me that cindric didn't (laughs) cindric was going for justin wilson and he was going i don't know whether that's 100 percent true i Mm -hmm. think roger was just giving tim a hard time but (laughs) Um, um, they, they, the, the team called Derek Walker, um, to say we couldn't really get a read on Will because he, because they thought they didn't know that Derek had been giving me lessons on talking or any of this, or Derek had anything to do with it. Yeah. They just knew that I drove for Derek 
Derek worked for Roger, so Tim thought, I'll give Derek a call and see what Will's all about. And Derek, you know, gave him the full sum up. And Fantastic. Uh, yeah, and I thought I was – I never heard from him. It was really – like, I remember Liz and I actually went to Disney World and was walking around. I was a bit miserable. I'm like, oh, man, I, I just – because I so badly wanted that. I mm. just so badly wanted that seat because I knew I could do a good job. Mm. I thought the year before in LA was just such a bad year – it didn't show what I could do. And I felt like, man, if they could just give me a shot. Mm. Um, and then the night before I was leaving for Australia, they called and my wife's asleep on the couch. I get the call. I was like, hello. It's like, yeah, well, it's uh, Tim Sindrick and uh, Roger Penske here on the call, <laughs> calling to tell you we, we want to give you the ride. I was like, and I talked kind of down. I didn't sound too excited. I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm like clicking at least. Like, it's <laughs> fucking. <laughs> Like it's right. Like we were just, I was just blown away. Like what an amazing present to go home with because I'd spent so many Christmases, like just about every Christmas, wondering what the hell I'd be doing next year. Mm. Um, This time, I knew they told me, and you'd start testing, and um, you know, you'd do the first ray or do whatever Mm. until Elio gets back. Maybe it was only one tester. I don't know, but I had a foot in the door anyway. And as I talk to you now, the the willpower I know. As a as a young man is is very different to the the, the character we we talk to now, but but still um, true to your your roots and who you are. What I'm trying to say is that I guess the surety of working for someone like Roger, the fact that you had had cracked it with a, a big team, was that a relief off your your shoulders? Okay, there were still things that needed to be ticked from a a championship and ultimately an Indy 500 point of view, but that's such a big endorsement for you, mate. Oh, man, huge relief. It really was a team that you weren't – because, you know, it wasn't all smooth sailing with Team Australia and it wasn't always sure that we'd be able to continue on and, you know, whether you get paid and, you know, sponsorship was tough. Roger, it's there. Like, he just has to say it and you know you're there. Um, I just remember feeling so good over Christmas just having that contract. Um, and something, something great to aim for, something great to aim for. You know, you're getting a chance to test with Penske um, and, and potentially race, you know, because at that point you weren't guaranteed anything. It was all based on what happened with Elio Castroneves in his trial. Um, so it was a huge relief. It really was. And not only because you're getting the ride, but also let's say I only did get a test or two. They chose me. And other teams would see that. So I, 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 I reckon that I would have been thinking like, you know, if, if I end up not getting the right and Elliot comes back, other teams would look at that and go, well, Penske picked him, so maybe we should give him a try. So, you know, I, I, it was just a big relief in that respect. And, and you were going to get paid again too. But, you know, my, funnily enough, when I did my first test for those guys, it was a disaster. <laughs> It really was. Why? They had the, 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 something wrong with the master cylinders and the car was really not easy to drive. It was really – my KV car was better than that car at that point, like felt better than I was used to. And being someone, you know, just new to such a team with such a history, mm. you couldn't tell them like, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't be trimmed out today. It was that Sebring. You know, they trimmed out and there's no rubber down. It's just bloody hard to drive. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't like the steering wheel position. The seat wasn't right. And the brakes, I flat spotted the first set of tires I went out on because the, I went to hit the brake and they had a really soft brake pedal where I was used to a big master cylinder, which makes a, makes you have to push a lot more force to get the brake pressure in the KV car. So yeah. I went to the first time I went to brake hard. <laughs> four tires flat spotted, like hit it that hard. So they kind of gave me a, a like a, a, you know, you could say second chance, but they kind of like, well, we did find something wrong with the master cylinder. So that's why, because the tires were not good. And, and, uh, you know, I was quite nervous of the car. It was not comfortable. Um, it was very unforgiving. The next test was at Homestead and it was an oval. And you're thinking, mm. oh, 
you know, I've done a year with KV and we didn't know anything about ovals. And the last oval mile and a half, I got the hang of it and really enjoyed it and finished fourth. So this should be easy. Mm-hmm. The car was so nasty to drive. It was really uncomfortable. Like I didn't even go, like at that point, going wide open was just quite easy in those cars. I couldn't go wide open. And I was so uncomfortable. I asked Briscoe, like, hey, man, and I asked the team, can Briscoe drive my car? Because he just went out and was wide open, no problem. And he even said to me, he goes, yeah, man, just because they're Penske cars, it doesn't mean they feel solid. Like they might be fast, but they might not feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they're very unnerving. The rear was just moving around, which is very unnerving on a super speedway mm. um, because it's such a high speed. And these cars do not, they were very unforgiving. Um, just the way they'd snap and lose their downforce and you'd hit the wall. And the last thing you wanted to do, your second te- test with Penske was wall the thing. So I got Briscoe to jump in. He went in and went flat. <laughs> so, you know, it made me look even worse. Like like Ryan just jumped in. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Like he, wow. he had a, like, yeah, he was, you know, very used to that and comfortable mm-hmm. with it, I guess, and was just able to do it. Um, and I just had a bad test and I was sick too. I was, I had a bad cold. I didn't mm. tell the team that it was like uh, kind of feverish and, and Tim called Roger after that test and said, you know, Roger, I don't think this is our guy. It's just, really? you know, this isn't like, I think they were, I, yeah, I don't know how, I, I think it was up to Tim. They probably would have said, go, but I, I don't know how, what they, yeah, it would have been a conversation between Roger and Tim and probably said, well, we said we'd give him the testing. Let's, let's, uh, Let's go and see how he does at Barber. And then finally at Barber, I was half a second clear of the field. Mm. Finally, you know, got everything right. The car was right. The setup felt really good and went and tested and, and was P1 legitimately. Like where, you know, it was the first time I felt very comfortable in the car. And, and then, you know, Roger called me and said, congratulations on winning the test <laughs> type thing. So, you know, he was like thinking, okay, you know, we'll continue with this guy, I guess. Just being in the the framework, I mean, to drive for an automotive icon, huge, the resources, the people, the professionalism, I mean, relative to anything else you'd done, I mean, this was seriously next level, wasn't it? It was. It was. When you go to the workshop and you see the size of it the first time, you see the, you know, the carbon shop, the... Um, they have a wind tunnel. I think I went to wind tunnel. They have an engine shop. They're, they're, you know, they are actually in di- different uh, premises. But um, yeah, next level, next level in every way, including you know how many suits you get for the season or how many helmets you get for the season. Just things that when you were uh, coming up, you know, through Europe, through Formula Ford, you just you know you'd have the same suit and gloves for two, three years, yes. same helmet. Mm-hmm. You just dream of having multiple helmets and multiple suits, and like you know, you see, you would see some of those rich kids that you know came up had that had two suits for the weekend. That never happened for me. Like, mm. <laughs> um, so just down to those details, like in every way, it's just so professional, so well presented, so just everything. You know, the attire, mm. the deal they had with Hugo Boss, all that stuff. You know, it's just he's actually. You know, they had a deal with Hugo Boss. You get ten grand's worth of Hugo Boss, you just go into a store with a card, and you know you could always see Alio still got closets full of Hugo Boss stuff because he had so many years with Penske. But mm. yeah, I mean, they were just a yeah next level operation with the best stuff. I mean, it was not to mention the legends that had been there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a, a dream come true for a driver. Like it really is. I mean. Mm. And uh, you actually got to keep remembering that as you go along. You got to remember your situation mm. because not many people get that get that opportunity mm. where you get a car, um, and you know the team provides you a car that can win week in week out, the potential to win and win championships and Indy five hundred and this sort of thing. I mean, it's you got to remember that before if if you ever get a bit petty about something, you got to know mm. that you're in a very unique and good situation. From the success of that barber test, what was the point? Maybe it was an, an, an event or a qualifying session or, or a result of some kind where 
you know, because there's some great names in the in the championship, some great teams. You've talked about, you know, Ganassi there before and Penske, who you were with. What was the moment you felt cemented in IndyCar? Can you recall that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first race in 09 after, the, you know, I think, I know, I think Barber must have been the last test, but the first race in 09 was uh, St. Pete. And I actually, I qualified in the top six and, Hung on, I think, to finish six, which just, but it was just an average race. Didn't I kind of mm-hmm. someone crashed in front of me and I didn't really get to showcase my speed there. You know, I think Ryan uh, Briscoe out qualified me, um, but I was still in the top six, not bad. Just mm-hmm. like if you know your team owner would just be like, yeah, average, nothing spectacular. But the next race was Long Beach, and mm-hmm. um, they told me before we went there, there's a chance that Elio may get acquitted. Um, that weekend. So what we're going to do, we're going to bring another car and another truck and we're not going to open it. Um, the people that are going to run the car are going to stay in the hotels if nothing's happening and um, and keep out of sight so no one knows. Uh, and and if Elia gets acquitted, and then we'll, you can run the weekend. So I was very happy about that. Um, that <clears throat> I wouldn't be kicked out. So I... Uh, Finished Friday practice and Tim Sindrick said, well, good news is you're P1. Bad news is Elliot got acquitted and you're going to have to get out and <laughs> go to the back of the pit lane. It was the very last pit stall. So I was like, okay, yep, no problem. Um, you know, it was all fitted to me and uh, went out and qualified on pole. Uh, obviously, Elliot hadn't been in the car, so you could never expect him, but I out-qualified uh, Ryan and, and everyone, obviously, and, and qualified on pole. And Roger, because it was the you know the rounds you had to get through, you you know the, they split the the groups up, and the first twelve go, and top six out of that goes, it gets to the next round, and the next twelve go, and the top six out of that round. Well, Elio and Ryan were out out in the first round, so Roger came down to my stand, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was John Erickson who was running me that weekend. So yeah, I'll I'll take over, and uh, <laughs> and it was it was pretty cool, like. The, you know, that Roger, Roger Pensky on your stand, yeah. a bit nerve wracking. And I went out, set a lap that I was like, you know, that's as good, that's as good a lap as I can do. It was pole at the time. Um, there's still a few minutes to go and came in and said, yeah, Roger, Roger, I don't think I can, I reckon I can go any quicker than that. I think that's it. And he said, yeah, put some tires on it, send him out, <laughs> send me out again. I was like, <laughs> and I went down into turn one and locked up and went through the run. I said, just park it in there. You're, you know, just wait till the session's over. And we came in and uh, once the session was over, came in the piss, he goes, yep, all right, pole position, good job. Headsets off, walks off like, you know, that's, that's normal. But for me, it was like, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, it was me showing what I could do. Like that really was the first, that was the first, mm. oh, apart from Australia, obviously, in 08, the end of 08, I did get of pole course. there, yes. Yeah. But it, yep. it backed up that speed that I'd shown there and backed up some of the speed I'd shown that year before. And um, uh, that race, we actually, you know, we started on pole, but the they forgot to connect the radio. So I spent the whole day just mm. saving fuel, not knowing the strategy and um, finished second, easy second, but could have easily won that, easily driven away and won that. Uh, I, you know, was really, really conservative. But, uh, you know, Dario won and second was good enough and I was the highest in the team. And I think at that point they committed to Indianapolis. It was after Indy he said, we'll okay. give you another another six races. So, yeah, it just kind of went from there. But it really came down to performing at the time though. Because you, you imagine it, you know, at St. Pete and, and uh, uh, at Long Beach, you'd, you'd, you'd underperformed, you were terrible, you, you know, crashed out or you just – but qualify badly, there's no way those guys would have said, you know, we're going to mm-hmm. give you another chance. They just wouldn't um, because, you know, they expect, you know, big, they expect really good results. So, you know, I, I had the pressure, but I knew with the right equipment that I could do it. I knew it. I knew I had the speed. Um, so I didn't, I, I felt pretty confident, uh, especially at Long Beach, because that was the first time that. Um, I'd raced there a couple of times and all those other guys hadn't. Um, so I felt pretty confident that track.
What happened to Champ Car? In 2008, Champ Car was bought by IndyCar and the series were merged. Although it is gone, it's definitely not forgotten. I want to break down some things in your your career now. Firstly, let's go to the title win, 2014. When you look back over time, the the immense raw talent, the the way that you went to the wire on various occasions and got so close, the the to to clinch that and to get it done must have been enormously satisfying. Knowing all of the the backstory you've covered here in the podcast and how close you'd come, it was yeah, a huge weight off my shoulders. It was to have finished second three times leading up to that, but being so dominant, mm. like we were just simply so much faster than everyone for those, you know, ten, eleven, twelve. Um, to give up those championships just was just just unbelievable. It, we could not finish that off. Um, so to finally get it uh, was just a huge relief. The, the stress le- leading up to that last race in fourteen was just unbelievable, and and the 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 contrast from that stress to the next day when you'd won it was just massive. What mm. what a relief! What a great feeling. Um, you know, to finally get that, that uh, you get that championship it was just, yeah, a great feeling. Very, very, very satisfying. Um, what did you say to your dad? Can you remember when you called oh, him or spoke to him? I can't remember. No, my mother was there. It's the only race she ever attended. It's the only race she's ever attended. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And she, she was there to see that, which was really cool. And she got to, where, where do we go after that? Um, Oh, she came to the banquet and it was really cool. Like, cause my mother can't watch. She didn't even watch the race. She actually sat in the truck with, or in the hospitality with a couple of other guys. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cause she just, it's too nerve wracking for her. Um, I don't know whether she even came out on pit lane uh, at any time, but I did post a video recently. I might've been on my personal Facebook of my mother, mother there at the celebration. It was really, really cool to have my mum there. And definitely in 18, when I won the 500, my brother had just decided to come. Like my family really have don't come to really any races. And he came to that race of all races. So it's, yeah, pretty, pretty cool to have a family member there, which, you know, just hasn't, ha- just hasn't been for me. It just, but yeah. That is, you've gone to the, that next part of the discussion here, winning the greatest spectacle in motor racing. First Aussie to do it, hundred odd year history of of the race. That is mighty. That was yeah. That still that will go down as the the best racing day of my life. It really will. Mm. Like I, I will remember that so clearly forever. And as I as I uh, um, you know envisioned it beforehand, you know visualized it was exactly the day I expected. Very perfectly clear perfectly it was a hot warm day full crowd um and even i'd envisioned crossing that finish line and going into victory lane yeah it was man and you know you just so badly want to do that again such an event there's nothing mm-hmm. like there's you know, three hundred thousand people in one place it's just an amazing it's just it's such an event such an event with so much history um that i didn't appreciate until later in my career. I didn't appreciate the first couple of years I did it or first few years, I really didn't appreciate it, um, appreciate the history and the significance of that race or didn't realise the significance of it. So um, it certainly built on me over the years and then when I continually didn't win it, um, if you ever see <laughs> the victory lane, the expression on my face, is certainly every emotion you can imagine, even anger in there because – that was a question I got for so long with how many races I'd won over that decade, most of anyone, but not that race. Um, yeah, mm. just, yep, uh, very, very cool. You, you posted on so- social media very recently, that car, I think it's it's still at Penske. Yeah. Um, does it evoke, I mean, the way that you've just recounted it clearly evokes some special memories. It does, um, yeah. 
describe it, what it was like to drive, because to the uninitiated, the motorsport followers of the podcast will will know. But I think Dario said to me on the on you know in a chat we had that I mean that the technical nature of racing at Indianapolis, the untrained eye looks at it and thinks, how hard can it be? Yeah, but it is every bit that and more, isn't it? It is. It's um, you know oval racing in particular Indianapolis, which really is the fastest. It is the fastest oval we race at is, um, you know, it's such a different discipline to what you would expect on a road course or something because it's so much about the car, but mm. the feeling and feedback you give to that car and the adjustments you can make in the cockpit and where you run in the air, like where you're running, you know, the wake, understanding the wake well and being able to cross the wake quickly and get half a car on the inside then cross it on the way back out. Um, you know, and the closer you get to the wake, the more constant the air is, there's less buffeting. Um, and just so much, like there's so much feel through the hands. Like it, it's so nuts. It looks like you're just driving so slow, but you just, you just feeling the little pressure points, you know, that footprint that is a grab, mm. you know what I mean? You just release a little bit of pressure. It's almost pressure. You know, Rick Mears would talk about that a lot, that sort of thing. And it took me years to, Actually, you know, until later in my career when I started winning ovals, that I got really good at that feel and understood exactly what Rick had told me years before. Mm. Um, um, which, yeah, it's just constantly being ahead of the car, understanding where the car's at. It's poor. It's. It, I would say for anyone that hadn't raced ovals, you know, you know, any race car driver, it, it's a very uncomfortable feeling at first. Mm. Because it, it's you don't you don't feel the limit. Like when I first did my rookie orientation test, there you kind of you're getting up to speed and you're just doing one ninety, and you're like, oh, you know, am I on the limit? You don't know because you don't want to push over the limit because that means hitting the wall. Mm. Um, so it's quite a it takes quite a while to get good at ovals. The whole the whole package, let's say, you know, you can go out and be fast very fast very quickly in a in a good car which you'll see rookies do, but then you'll, you'll see them get caught out. They always get caught out. Mm. I watched, uh, it was Felix Rosenquist. I can't remember, it was last year or the year before. I think it was the year before his rookie year. Came motoring by me in practice and I watched him like, mm. and he's getting too confident. Dude's going to crash. Like that was going to turn one, turn two, boom, destroys the car in front of me. And you could see that happening. I saw he came past me. I said in my head, he's going to shunt. He's going, you can't, you got to respect the place. You cannot, you know, you got to you know, be very conscious when you get below that white line or grab a little bit of curb or put a bit too much lock in when the wind's gusty. Or, I mean, it's just so much experience there. You see, I mean, when Alonso came, you see he got caught out by an understeer moment, not an oversteer moment. He got caught out by the front mm. washing away because that's a thing. Like it's, it's something, mm. you know, it's one thing I noticed when I first raced there in 08. I was, I was like, yeah, understeer is a moment because it suddenly starts pushing towards the wall at a, and you're mm. at a ridiculous speed and you're like, <gasps> you know. So it's understanding, you know, just it just comes down to experience. It really does. You cannot teach someone that um, to be good on an oval. Uh, and when you've got a bad car on oval, it's the worst day of your life just sucks but when you've got a good car it's just amazing but you get so good at making a good car and staying on top of the tools and understanding what you need in the stop and you know that's that's uh there's just so much to it that you wouldn't believe mm. you know it's, it's 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 equally as much to it in discipline as it is as there is on a road course although on a road course the driver can make a bigger difference mm. but in a funny way on an oval the driver makes a almost as big a difference but by feedback and 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 adjustments and that sort of thing you're not going to drive through a bad car simply mm. if your car's bad it doesn't matter who you are you will not be fast so it comes down to making a good car and understanding what makes a good car fabulous insights mate and uh, highlight and underscore there the word um respect for indianapolis as well it's a game that is as dangerous as it is exhilarating you know there are there are some well-documented crashes over time your book which i would implore listeners to go and find and read it's called the sheer force of willpower you open up 
on October 16, 2011 there, that massive crash at Vegas, you were left with broken vertebra, um, half the field wrecked at 220 mile an hour or something or other. And uh, I mean, that was, yeah. how do you compartmentalize a day like that? You know, you know, I dreaded that day going there. I really did. I dreaded that style of racing. And I had preached for those two years once I became, you know, a regular winner that we shouldn't be racing this way. It's just insane. Why are we racing this way? It requires mm. zero talent. Um, you know, people are up there that don't deserve to be up there just because their car's fast and they're, it, it, it requires less talent and more balls. I couldn't stand that. Mm. Um, you know, and I just, yeah, it's just, we shouldn't have been racing there. 33, 34 cars on a super speedway is just, after practice, you just realize this is going to be the most insane pack race, insane pack race. And what happens in a pack race is, you know, you get two or three wide at the front and then the guy behind, there's two or three deep. You can't back off. You can't go mm. forward. You can't move sideways. I mean, it's insane. You feel trapped at 220 mile an hour. You know, mm. what's that in case? Um, you know, 350 kilometers per hour. Inches apart, like I remember that I fell back quickly because I set the car way too loose. I was actually going for the championship there uh, with Dario. I was just like, you know, I have moments constantly. So I just all the way back, you know, Weldon went past me, and, you know, a bunch of guys went past. And you, yeah, you're so engaged because it's so insane seeing, you know, let's say 25 cars in front of you. Then you see little puffs of smoke and you lift, like, you're like, oh, it's going to be a, going to be a crash because people touching wheels yeah yeah you see you see smoke and then the weldon incident uh you know you're always looking ahead for smoke see smoke now i'm like lift no it's all right no smoke and then see big smoke because they touched and then he's collecting and then i think it was hitchcliffe and wade cunningham big smoke and then all hell breaks loose like it's just insane the crash that like ensued after that. Um, and I went flying up. I'm like, oh, I'm going to catch fence severe. Touch down, I land on top of another car, massive shunt, sliding. Then I come sliding to a stop. And the car, as I'm sliding, another car slides in front of me. And, and I just thought it went past my head from what I saw because the visor was missing off this, you know, it was Weldon helmet. And I immediately, like, I don't know why. I just said someone was killed in this accident. Straight away. I just immediately thought that. I don't know why I said that or it was just the percentage chances that, that we had been taking for so long mm. that it's just inevitable. But that was a thought that went in my head. Mm. And as I sat there looking at the guy in front of me, not knowing who it was at the time, and uh, I get really screwed up when I talk about it, but... Um, <laughs> yes, wash him, pull him out. And, you know, it's just, and I actually didn't move because I knew I broke my back again. And Paul Tracy came over and said, uh, you know, you should get out. Your car's on fire, fire man. Um, so I got out. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I just told the guys, a group was standing, obviously a big group, something crashed out. I said, oh, I said, basically just said, whoever's in that car is dead said that um, yeah because I could see it the horrible yeah anyway but uh, um, yeah then we went back to the medical center which is even a worse scene well, just a terrible terrible you know we all went to the medical center and obviously there were um, Dan was in there and, uh, Paul Tracy protected yeah, you he, a little bit too didn't he mate he asked you not to look at some things or try to mm. he said yeah he said he told us you don't need to look at that like because he as they wheeled him in, um, and uh, yeah, man, it's just a just a yeah PTSD, I guess, when you think about it. Um, and I walked out in the waiting room, saw my wife, and uh, actually saw Susie coming in. Or I saw Susie there. Went to the hospital mm-hmm. for my back, um, and kept asking like, "How's Dan? How's Dan?" And the nurse, the IndyCar nurse, wouldn't tell me. And, um, uh, you know, how's Dan? What's going on? And my wife said, man, and my wife said, yeah, sorry, well, I don't think Dan made it. Um, 
which is just nuts, just 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 surreal to me. Um, and then when we got discharged from the hospital, I actually was just leaving and ended up in the elevator with Susie, who was leaving the hospital as well, Susie Weldon. Um, and, you know, obviously it was like, I can't remember what I said. I was just, you know, so sorry for, mm. you know, for what she would have to go through. And, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nasty very. situation, man. Like a very nasty situation that I, I had kind of just pleaded for us to stop racing this way for, you know, the few years that I had been there because I just thought it was so crazy mm. that we did that. In a funny way that though you got used to it and did at, I guess I could say when you had a good car, mm. you enjoyed it. Like when you had a chance, so, you know, I had some intense epic races. Actually, one was with Dan Weldon at Chicagoland, which was like Vegas, just wide open, stacked deep. And I made my way to the front and was just side drafting inches off him for like, you know, an hour and a half, you know, just inches, like just squeezing him down. And that's how we, that's how you would race. And you're so engaged. Mm. It's insane um, because, you know, you're, you're, you're mentally engaged because it's such an insane thing to be doing at that speed with open wheels. If you touch just a bit and it's just a massive crash as you mm. saw in Vegas. So if it had been safe, you probably would have somewhat enjoyed it, but you just know in your mind um, that it can be, yeah, yeah. You, I did the math in my head. I did the math in my head that every four year years a driver was killed and every single year a driver was seriously injured in that series i would do the math in my head then i'd say things to convince myself that it was all right like well you know you got to add into that percentage chance that you're in a good team so you run further at the front so you're less chance to get caught up in the accident you play mm. these sort of games in your mind to justify that you will get back mm. in that car and race that's particularly after you've seen you know someone killed um, and then after 15, two people, you know, you mm -hmm. knew killed Justin Wilson and, um, uh, 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 Dan, um, you, you just, man, like it was, there were times I got in that car and I really, you really did not know if you would come back out. You really, really thought that you believed it in your heart. Like there is a chance, especially, you know, after 2011, after witnessing that, you know, you get, get a bit of that. You know, I guess you call it PTSD, but getting in that car and knowing like what the consequences could be, um, you had that thought, like you would get in um, thinking that it's just crazy, but you would. But then once you know everything started rolling, you'd go on with your thing. But um, caused me a lot of anxiety over a long time, a long period racing in that way because I loved open wheel racing. Um, obviously, loved road course racing. I was driving for the best team, but I had this thing, which was having to race on high bank super speedways with this formula of mm. pack racing, which I did not, which I would just have loved not to have done. I would have loved to have just a road course mm. series at that point. Um, but it got better and I ended up loving ovals and really to the point where I was winning more ovals than road courses. So that's when they took the downforce away and they put the driver back in it. So um, yeah, it was a, let's say I had a lot of anxiety in those years, a lot of anxiety about that, a lot of thought of, um, I hate to say it, but th thought of oh, death wow. and actually kind of got comfortable with it because you'd make, you kind of would make things up in your head like, oh, well, you know, like life isn't that long anyway. You know, I've experienced 30 odd years of it. And so, so justified in your mind kind you of try, You were always trying to justify it because you had such a good job. You had mm -hmm. such a good job. It was so hard. Like if you weren't getting paid and it was not a good job, like clearly you wouldn't do it because mm -hmm. you knew the risk and it wasn't that fun for you, like the pack racing for me. But, um, you know, it was this cool job with these road courses and cars I love to drive and something that I've, a discipline I've worked on all my life. Um, but you have to do this, which is extremely dangerous. You've seen a couple of friends killed, um, yeah, 
yeah, that played on my mind and I don't know how many other drivers was thinking in that way or how that was for them, but it certainly was for me. Um, but I got in and did it. I got in and I would still race hard and well. I got in and did it. I would, I would, I would, sh- I would shut it out. Yeah. You're to be credited there for sharing. Thank you. And, and, um, you know, m- maybe talking about it like that is actually quite good tonic in the way that you've, you've been able to move forward, clearly getting on with it. Yeah. Winning the Indy 500 and things like that is, has been good for you as well, mate. Can we, um, Touch on a couple of things to, to finish here because it's been a, a, a fascinating recount. It's a game of rivalries too. So what has it been like with, uh, you know, like I imagine time, um, I think Dario, when he spoke to me, talked about the fact that, you know, you guys, it was intense between you guys there um, and, you know, perhaps mind games and, and sight games. But now in his post-race career, you guys have a better relationship, don't you? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, when I raced Dario, he was kind of towards the end of his career and so he was the experienced driver and probably, you know, I was certainly quicker than him on uh, road courses and he was Mm. certainly more experienced and better than me on ovals. And, um, um, you know, so we actually didn't race race each other all that often. There was a couple of times we did come together when we did, but... You know, I'd often be qualifying on pole in the way on the road courses and, um, you know, he would put it all together very well on the ovals. But, uh, yeah, it was the guy that I was seemed to be racing in, the, in you know, in 2010, 11. Uh, and in 12, the new car came and didn't really suit Dario that well. But, um, uh, mm. yeah, had some tense battles with him and, obviously didn't get along and I would say that I was immature and probably didn't understand respect enough as you know how you would treat a competitor I was just still young and you know you just you as you get older you just have more respect for people in general and just are more respectful the way you act and such so you know he was he was older than me and and you know just uh, we get on well now we really do and, um, you know, I have tremendous respect for everything he did in the sport. Um, you know, to win four championships and three Indy 500s is amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a legend of the sport and I feel privileged to have got to race him hard and battle him in championships. So, yeah, just all, all, good, all good stuff. All good rivalries. Yeah. We know you've got another championship in you. We know that you've absolutely got the the speed, the um, the commitment to hopefully win another Indy 500 as well. As we chat to you, you are weeks out from turning. I think the big four zero. Am yes. I right? Is is the fortieth yes. birthday on the <laughs> <It> approach? <is. laughs> so you, you kind of um, you know you're at a you're at an age and stage in life where you've you've ticked a number of of boxes, but. What does the immediate future hold for, for willpower? I'm, I am as fast as I ever have been. I'm very uh, obviously very experienced now and know what, you know what I need from the car. And I have the fire burning as strong as ever. You know, I'm still awesome. as determined and working as hard as I ever did, but with experience. So, you know, I really, really, really want to win a championship before I retire. And obviously want to win a, another 500, but, you know, the, the championship is something that, you know, when I look back on my career that I'm disappointed in that I really feel I should have won more. I really do. When, you know, I look at the, mm. the number of races I won, the number of poles, the number of laps led, it's more than anyone over, you know, the decade from 2010 to 2020, um, but there's only one championship in there. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, I've, uh, yeah, more comfortable in my skin than ever in my life. And, um, and like I said, I, I'm, I'm as quick and as determined as I was in my twenties, but with experience. It is fabulous to hear you talking like that. At the beginning of the podcast, you talked about being a father. Is there another generation power racer? Uh, likely to hit the the tracks in the years to come. Uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, you don't know what kids will want to do, but if he wants to do it, 
I'm going to steer in towards golf or tennis. <laughs> it's so much cheaper, <laughs> so much cheaper, <laughs> uh, less dangerous. But yeah, I mean, you know, huge passion of mine. So if he shares that, I'll uh, I'll push him in. Yep. I'll help him. I'll help him. My dad never pushed me. Never. He never pushed me. He he uh, he just. I had to want to do it. He never pushed me into it, so I'll be the same with my son. Nice. Karting, we've seen you and uh, Scotty McLaughlin having some fun. Willpower Karts, this is not just a passion project, something you're quite savvy about from a business point of view too, obviously, by the looks of it. Uh, yeah, it's it was – I it came about in 2019. I was running the Super Nats in Vegas, and that's just a huge race. You get a few Aussie guys over there for that, but huge event for karting, like a kind of like a world championship type event. And I was racing there, and I, the, Billy Vincent, who was my crew chief, my what I say, my first crew chief at Penske, um, and now is the uh, is the competition manager at McLaren IndyCar team. He said, "Man, you need to start your own car brand." I'm like, "Nah, no one's going to buy my car. I don't want to do that." <laughs> And he, so he got right behind it and he really did all the work for it. And, and then, you know, we got hooked up with Cart Republic, which is a, you know, a very good cart brand. And they were keen to do something, um, to have the willpower cart. Um, and it went from there. And yeah, we actually sold quite a few carts, like more than we expected this year. Definitely more than we Great. expected and, 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 and in Australia. So bit of fun because I, you know, I have a real part, passion for go-karting. I think it's such a great sport and I do not want to see it um, ever go away. I think it's so integral in the, Vital. the stepping yeah. stone to, to um, you know, becoming a professional driver. I think it's so important. So, uh, yeah, I, and I still race them. I still race cards. I love it. Little Birdie tells me you've got a 911 GT2 RS tucked in the garage. That is a, a cool little escape machine from time to time. Yeah, it's it's nuts, man. It's so fast. <laughs> you can't drive it. Well, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to go out in the Australian streets because you'd be you'd have it crushed or whatever they do if you get caught. But here they're certainly more lenient, especially you know if you're. Uh, I, I don't go out, go crazy on street, mind you, but they are more yeah. lenient. I'll say that. Um, awesome. But yeah, it's a great car. Yeah, very, very nice car. Very like it's a it's a race car for the road. Super light. Um, yeah, handles really well. Massive carbon brakes on it. A lot of power. Yeah, really, really cool car. Final one. I got to work with your brother. Damien, well-known comedian that people can <laughs> people can find on YouTube if they haven't seen him. He does some great stand-up stuff. He and I spent a year doing different projects together in in, um, in 2019. I, I think he jokingly says he taught you everything that you now know in in motor racing terms. <laughs> and didn't he do didn't he do a funny piece? You might um, you might fill the blanks in here for me, but I think he did a funny piece about you talking about the hardships of racing, the, the the tough ladder that you've had to had to climb. And then he, he finishes it by saying, and then he jumps in his Ferrari and drives off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. That's a that's a great uh, that's a great clip, that one. He yeah. really sums it up well. Um, <laughs> I think it was after I won the championship he did that one. Um, yeah, you find it is yeah, it's it's there on YouTube in one of his videos. It's pretty pretty funny. I, I actually really like that clip. He yeah. certainly is. Yeah, it's about true. <laughs> it's about <laughs> true. Well, you know, comedian. I actually, when you think about a comedian, like they have a similar life to a race car driver. Like these dudes live on couches. They have, they work their ass off for, for years to try get get a gig. You know, like to get a kind of TV spot or you know some comedy show or maybe some acting work. So you know that that's him. That's him. He's been living on couch. He's actually written a. He wrote a, a TV series and he got picked up by uh, HBO and he's been working with a director in um, excellent uh, uh, in, in in Hollywood. So um, and then it obviously has to go through many stages and they then they do the pilot and yada yada. So you know it's 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 a lot of lot of hard work, but he does a lot of writing now. But yeah, he's when I look at his career, it's a, it's a it's it's similar the way those guys. I mean, it's like that in every discipline. But yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I certainly had plenty of laughs with him in 2019. It has been, we've spoken for a couple of hours here and we're, we're immensely grateful for that. 
Thank you so much for the walk down memory lane and from, from everybody here, congratulations on what you've achieved. Some amazing records there. We know there's more good stuff to come. Go and enjoy it and, and have a fabulous season. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. I really do. It was really, really great chat. Thank you. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.